brothers and sisters, children. Last week I made the mention that uh, when we looked at the passage before us then, we saw as if Christ the Lord had Satan by his throat. Um, and when you squeeze on someone's throat and you squeeze hard enough, I think you know what happens. I think we have come to the point where the squeeze became so tight that when you go through chapters 16, 17, and 18, Satan is dead, shall we say. He is overcome. Now, the power that stood up and the imagery that was referenced here of the false prophet, you go back to chapter 18 to hear more about that. Um, those powers of enmity have been overcome. And so when we know that Christ had Satan by the throat, uh, Christ also has overcome him. And therefore, the, 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 the tone of this passage is so positive in that it starts out with that uh, beautiful praise of those who are the citizens of heaven, the great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Uh, hallelujah. It's mentioned four times, by the way. Um, and the Greek uses the um, transliteration. Um, the, the Greek, the text, the Greek text uses Alleluia. Uh, usually in the Bible, uh, the person writing the text translates that to then say in the Greek text, praise the Lord. But it's just Alleluia that's mentioned. And we don't see that anywhere else in the New Testament except once. Um, I don't know what exact significance there is to that, but it's just what commentators uh, note that um, the, the, the Greek itself is mentioned, Alleluia. Well, Alleluia means praise of God, praise the Lord. And so it is time to celebrate. That's probably the bottom line purpose for saying all of this. It is time for heaven to rejoice. And it is time for you to rejoice. I want to make that quite clear right off the bat. Um, no pun intended, Michael. Uh, um, right at the beginning of our message, we need to say that this is a message that is not just out there for the church out there. It's for you and for me. A message of hope, a message of conquest, of victory. Jesus' conquest is my conquest uh, the struggle that preceded the victory of Christ is also my struggle in a sense. Um, as Christ was called to suffer, I am called to suffer. Uh, before I reach the crown, I first bear the cross. And my master and my savior is my example in that regard. Him uniquely, of course, but in parallel fashion, we follow the master's example uh, as the suffering servant who through suffering reaches victory in the end. And so this morning we have this beautiful passage where the citizens of heaven rejoice in Christ's victory. And I have uh, distinguished, uh, identified um, three points. Uh, the, the one who is the rider on the horse, uh, his identity, um, his war that he wages, as well as his celebration. So let's take a look at that um, this morning. 
Well, his identity is uh, quite clearly uh, expressed when you go to verses uh, 11 through 16. Uh, there you see that he, uh, John sees heaven opened and he says he sees a horse, uh, a white horse. Um, and this white horse has someone sitting on it. And this person is called faithful and true. Uh, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. I think an allusion to that person is already mentioned in that chapter 6 with the opening of the first seals where the four horses are mentioned. And one of those horses is the white horse and the one sitting on it uh, makes conquest. Uh, I think there's a parallel there. But here specifically, Christ our Savior, I would say, is highlighted. And he is the one who sits um, on uh, his horse. I... Uh, I, I kept thinking about um, a, a mental imagery that came to my mind as I read this passage. Uh, I think all of us of some age are familiar with Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, and we've all seen pictures of Napoleon at some you know, war scene. And uh, you know, this little short Frenchman uh, with a huge hat. Uh, but you know, he, he looks regal, doesn't he? he? He looks like he is the commander in chief. Uh, he is uh, he's in charge. You know, sits on that horse like this. And, uh, uh, you know, I, it made me think of that when I saw the description of Christ our Savior in all of his lordship. Um, as much as we need to remember that the Lord on the horse here, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came as the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. That's no longer the case. Because he suffered for that purpose. By his weakness, gaining strength, gaining victory, salvation forgiveness of all our sins through the cross and the blood that was shed there but now it's time for other blood to be shed now it's time for the savior who has risen who is king of kings and lord of lords to go across the nations and he traverses across the earth and with the army the hosts of of, of, uh, of heaven also on white horses following him and they are on conquest they're bent on victory and there is no more uh, 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 suffering servant imagery here. It's all lordship. It's all justice. It's all retribution. And I think that that is something that the church often misses out on when you look at the way we worship, for example. I had to save that for another point in the sermon, but I'll say it right now. How many praise songs? And I'm not against praise songs, by the way. I'm, I'm not you know, against the church making new songs. But how many of the praise songs in evangelical churches, broadly speaking, without pointing fingers, have praise songs that highlight the praise of God for his revenge? I think typically praise songs reflect on a person's sentiment of what Jesus has done for us personally, and that's wonderful. To exalt the name of Jesus for that is wonderful. But I think we're missing something. And I think that the Psalms in this regard help us to refocus ourselves and to see that the Lord who came so beautifully and wonderfully as a babe in Bethlehem and he laid down his life for the forgiveness of your and my sins. He's coming again. Not as a babe in a manger, but as the one who is on the horse. And his mighty army of, of the heavens are following him. And they're bent to, sent to do one thing. And that is to conquer, to judge in retribution. Without delay. 
as we saw last week as well. Without delay, it is now time for judgment. And Jesus can be praised for that as well. And maybe that is what we maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable about as Christians. We know how unworthy we are to have received this free gift of grace, that we are less quick to praise him for the judgment that he will bring because that judgment that is coming upon the world was really my judgment unless God had pity on me and saved me. But I think there is biblical reason to have a, 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 a uh, uh, expression of music and song that celebrates both Christ's suffering and death on the cross by which we have obtained our forgiveness as well as his coming again in glory and majesty and with justice and righteousness because he is the one who is indeed, as it says, faithful and true. And so that is his identity. It is, of course, uh, pointed out in this text that he is on the horse, that he has eyes, and that eyes look like a flame of fire. Uh, hard to kind of picture that, um, how that, what John saw in that vision, but I think it is clear enough for us to say that it is both, yes, unique, and it is also uh, a sense of uh, uh, flame of fire, uh, judgment, justice, retribution. Uh, this is not a peace announcement. This is not a uh, Billy Graham uh, invitation to come forward. This is, it's it, it's over, it's done with. You need to come and be summoned before the judgment seat of God and that's where you will receive the ultimate wages of your sin. Death and hell for all, for all eternity. The eyes are arresting the nations. And on his head many diadems. He is he's majestic, he's powerful, he's glorious. And his name is such that no one knows it but himself, it says here. It's a little bit confusing to me, the reader, when then at the few verses later, we uh, come to find out that you know, his name is the word of God. Uh, and I, I don't quite know how to, how to match those two thoughts here. But uh, it is such a name that the world in its unbelief has no knowledge of it, I would say. And doesn't really care about it either. If you live in unbelief, you don't care. You don't care about God. You don't care about judgment. You don't care about hell. Is there anybody here this morning who really ultimately doesn't really care about this? I need to have a talk with you. And you with me. Or with another brother or sister in Christ. Because you are facing the rider on the horse and all his armies, and you have no protection. You are exposed to the eternal judgment of God that is coming on those who have rejected him. And that is also pointed out again in how he, is, how he appears. It says in verse 13, he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This, this, robe is uh, this robe is dipped in blood. 
This is not the reference to the blood which Christ shed on the cross for us sinners by which we are saved now through which we are justified. This is the robe that is dipped in the blood of retribution, of wrath, of judgment, of the war that is raging as depicted in this vision. And the armies of heaven in fine linen and so forth following him. And from his mouth the sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. There again, I was wondering, what does that mean? And maybe you did too, as you read it. Because when Christ comes again, it's over, isn't it? But does it mean that when hell is finalized, when the day of judgment is over, there are the righteous in God's presence and the wicked are in, in Satan's presence, shall we say? Does it mean that the lordship presence of Christ is no longer over hell? Does not Christ possibly rule hell because he is Christ, he is Lord, he is God? I think he does. To be in hell is under the rule of a rod of iron. And there's nothing pleasant about it. You wonder how the first Christians read this, heard this, as they were persecuted in ancient Rome so many times. They could easily think of the Roman emperor as the one who is going to be on the menu list of the supper to which they will be called who are outside of Christ, as we see in a moment. And so this is the one who is Lord, he is king, and he is on that horse, that white horse. Uh, he comes in faithfulness, in righteousness, in justice, and he comes to judge the nations. And what is that war? Well, that war is that he comes to judge. He comes to make war. Um, and he comes to make war on those who have resisted God's lordship, God's life. It's the ones who have listened to the evil one, the one who is the devil the Apollyon, the deceiver of the nations. He's the one who tells you, you don't, you can, you don't really need to bow down to God. You, you can have an, a, a life that is almost just as good if you do it my way. If you, if you just know that there's love for you and joy for you and happiness and contentment for you if you do it my way, Satan's way. And you'll have fun, you'll have uh, happiness, and you have some sense of contentment. But it's a deception. And that is what we as Christians need to be aware of. Now, Satan, in your week that is before you, doesn't show up with the horns on somebody's head. He shows up in something that looks like possibly like something that is desirable and good. But it's not when you look a little closer to it. When you know your Bible and you know how to compare with uh, what you see, what you hear in the news or uh, from your colleagues at work and you compare that with God's word and you know, yeah, this is, this is not Jesus. 
This is not the, uh, ho- uh, the rider on the horse. Uh, this is not the gospel. Uh, this is, again, the evil one. However deceivingly, deceptively, subtly, but you have to have an antenna for that, the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of God's word to make that distinction and difference between what is true and what appears to be true. And so from this Lord, he's not an angel, he is Christ Jesus, and he has a word, a message to speak from his mouth, and that message is not, come all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. At this point in the revelation, that's over. What he comes with is a sword. When Jesus comes in all of that final justice and judgment, that he speaks there with, with condemnation. And he will strike the nations, it says, and he will rule over them with a, a rod of iron. What a gruesome picture when he will do that. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe uh, and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw in verse 17, an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and captains and on all those who were in enmity with God. That's the war to which, um, uh, that's the war that the Lord Jesus in that day will undertake together with all who follow him in his righteousness. What a summons that will be. There are two suppers to be invited to. Which of the one do you anticipate? The supper of God? The great supper of God? Or, as it says, um, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 9. I know where I want to be. And I know where I want to be because God has been gracious to me. Merciful all the time, even now. Beyond the moment of faith in trusting Christ, receiving his merits, his benefits of his perfect suffering and obedience to the Father, even now, today, following him, I know that it is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, that I am invited to that wonderful, glorious wedding feast of the Lamb that awaits all who are followers of Christ. But if you're an enemy enemy of Christ, know what awaits you then. Just as Christ in his lordship executes justice over the beast, beast representative, representative of Satan's power and rule in history as it was in a limited fashion given and granted to him, of course, but uh, all that he did in all of uh, the human history, all that he accomplished by his rebellion and all the following that he gained from among humanity to rise up against the Lord with him and to show up our fists in rebellion uh, against the Lord and his goodness and and mercy and life, goodness, um, they will be 
condemned. And so the beast and the false prophet, it says that they will be cast into a lake of fire. And, uh, and that, is a, that is a continuous process, it seems to me. That is not just uh, you know, annihilation for them, um, but that is uh, a lake of fire. I read in, his, in a history book this week how King Henry VIII uh, executed one of his critics by boiling him alive to death. What an experience it will be for Satan and the, the beast and the false prophet. But then of the others who followed him, who were deceived by them, it says that the lordship of Christ through his authority, through his mouth, through his sword, that it, they will be slain. And I only understand the word slain to mean killed. And I don't know if killed means that, that well, I do know that the Bible doesn't teach annihilation. But it does mean that when you're killed, it's final. And so that justice and retribution will be final. And there's no recovery from it. And so the overthrow of Satan is celebrated here. It is a beautiful thing. Let us rejoice, verse 7, and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, the bride, to, be, to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And that's the final point. That is the celebration that we see uh, here in this text. We, the people of God, the children of God, we are blessed. It's not the birds that will pick on our flesh someday, literally or metaphorically. But we are invited to the wedding feast of our bridegroom, the master of the universe, the Lord of glory, the king of kings. He is the head of the church. We are his bride together, one and all. We are going to celebrate his marriage with us, that ultimate union that takes place when Christ reunites himself with his bride uh, in all of its fullness and all the church prior to life in this world and maybe those who are still to come to faith in Christ in the days ahead and years ahead. We don't know when Jesus returns, but the fact is that there comes that day when we're invited and because we have been invited, because we've been called, we have been summoned by the gospel and we've responded to that call, we are invited to come and join that wedding feast. What a celebration. Sin is forever judged. Sin is uh, forever, forever a non-factor to us when we are with the Savior in his presence. And therefore, I do think as we sing our songs of praise in worship, we should celebrate not only the forgiveness full and free, but also the, uh, the, the, the work that our Savior accomplishes uh, when he comes again and he judges all the nations. Because it's not just that the nations are bad and evil, but it is also the picture that we often get in this vision that John received that those who stand up against God are not only standing up against the, sa the Savior Jesus Christ, but his church, us, his people. And so we, in a way, suffer my brothers and sisters in Manipur, India, this week suffered. The churches were burned down. 
and there has, there has been loss of life. And I don't know if that's among the people I met there or not, but uh, they have suffered um, uh, terribly. Um, but it is true for all of us, whether we suffer that way or we suffer the effects of the fall as we do day by day, that there comes a day when all of that is, is paid for, um, is, 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 is judged, and it is no longer something that we need to uh, deal with and, and live with. And so we can praise the Lord. Jesus, thank you for coming, and thank you for coming again when you will judge the nations because you came not only to save us from our sins, but you also came to condemn sin in the cross and in the end when you return, Lord Jesus. And so we are blessed, blessed to have been invited. And that leads me to the final thought, and that is that the vision tells John that um, the bride has prepared herself, it says in this passage, um, in verse 7. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. He sees it as having come already, um, and the bride has made herself ready. It just seems to me that that is a word of caution to us as well, that we need to prepare ourselves. We don't need to prepare ourselves in the sense that, am I saved or not? If that is a question, then you should ask yourself that question. Am I saved? Am I covered? Am I, am I in, in a true standing with the Savior, Jesus Christ? But if you know that by God's grace, then you are called to follow the Savior. And that following is your way and our way the Christian's way uh, of preparing ourselves for the great day. And that's not a day for the Christian that we were worried about. It is a day where you say, Lord Jesus, come quickly because you've invited us to a feast. And this feast will be just out of this world. It will be a feast that lasts forever. And what a day it will be when we rejoice in the Lord's goodness on us forever in all of its perfection. But prepare yourselves. Take each day seriously. It can be the last day. And we need to uh, present ourselves and say, Lord Jesus, and then we need to hear those words, you thou good and faithful servant, because it's not like you can take it for granted. We're not hyper-Calvinists. We're not other types of Christians that are out there, but we are those who take God's sovereign grace seriously and we also take our human responsibility equally seriously. And with that, we need to prepare ourselves because the bride makes herself ready. Which bride would not make herself ready for the day of her wedding? Which groom would not make himself ready for the day of the wedding. You wouldn't just say, okay, I'm going off with my buddies and play golf. Uh, nothing against golf, by the way. I'm not a golfer. Uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't have mentioned that example. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, you know what I mean. You are uh, very focused, of course, and you, and you do what you need to do. You need to prepare yourself. We Christians need to be more concerned about the return of our Savior Jesus Christ and the things of this world should not be a distraction. And there are things of this world, I've said this many times, there are things of this world that are good and fine. They're not bad and evil. But if all we are consumed with 
are the things of this world. And we never have talks about Jesus and his return. Then there is probably something not quite in proportion. There's an imbalance. And I think that that is something that the Puritans have helped us realize that we are invited to the wedding feast and our Savior is there, the one who loved us so much that he gave his life for me. He was willing to be crucified, nails driven through his flesh, the author of life, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Let himself be crucified for me and for you. Can you then take just indifferently the fact that he is coming again? You who have been by name summoned, you who have been graciously invited to say, okay, oh yeah, that's coming too. It's on the bottom of that list. No, if you really know God's grace, you take everything and every day seriously. You rejoice in the midst of all of that. In God's goodness, his grace, his mercy. You rejoice in one another. You rejoice in the good gifts that you receive from him, that he showers upon us still day by day. And even in the midst of sorrow and pain, we also rejoice in the Lamb, the Lamb of God who has promised us that he will neither leave us or forsake us. Until the end of the age, he will be with his church until he calls us home into his presence. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news coming again soon. May we prepare ourselves like it says in that parable Christ taught. There were five who were prepared, five not. Father, we pray that you would not find us not prepared. We ask, Heavenly Father, that instead we will prepare ourselves day by day for that great day that is coming when the Savior who laid down his life for us comes again and receives us into his permanent, forever, glorious presence and life. We ask and pray this in his name. Amen.